Hello, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome back to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. It's official, the ski season is underway here in Utah. As always, thanks to Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for kicking it off on this episode of Last Chair. Ski Utah's Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West's passion is crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home here in the American West. My personal favorite is Campfire. Check it out if you can. If you're visiting this winter, join me at one of High West's three must-visit locations in Park City and Wanship, just a short distance out of town. It's go time here in Utah with the ski season underway, and what a welcoming time we felt during the opening weeks at Ski Utah Resorts. Just wondering, have you taken your first runs of the season? We have a great lineup of guests for you this winter on Last Chair, taking a look inside the Utah ski and snowboard experience with the people who make it happen. Before we get to this episode, a shout out to Stein Erickson Lodge in Heber Valley for joining us as sponsors of Last Chair. Our guest today on Last Chair has an emotional story I know you will enjoy. Imagine you're a lifelong skier in the prime of your career as a collegiate ski racer. Then one day, it all changes. In 1988, a skiing accident robbed Chris Waddell of nerve functionality in his lower body in just an instant. Less than a year later, he was back on snow, although this time in a monoski. Chris Waddell went on to become one of the most decorated skiers in Paralympic history, making his home in Utah and even lighting the cauldron at the 2002 Paralympic Winter Games in Salt Lake City. From his 13 Paralympic medals to climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in a hand-cycled bike, Chris Waddell is truly an inspiration to others. Here's his story of finding opportunity out of tragedy. Chris Waddell, welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. Great to have you join us today. Tom, wonderful to join you and love what you're doing. So happy to be a guest here. Well, we've known each other for a long time, and I followed your career, so it's really an honor to have you on Last Chair. Where have you been spending your time? I know you were down here in Park City uh, for many years. We were kind of neighbors, and I hear we're going to be neighbors again, but where are you hanging out right now? We are in Garden City, Utah, which is a town of about 600 people on Bear Lake, which is due north, I guess, of, of Park City, but it takes about two hours to kind of go east and then northwest. But yeah, that's where we are. We're renovating a house in Silver Creek. So I think I've been following you around. I started in the same neighborhood that you started in in Park City. And now uh, if you're going to move, you need to tell me about it because because I want I want to know in advance. Well, Chris, we love where we live and I know you're going to love it here too. So don't look for us to move. So you're up in Garden City. I imagine you had a summer full of raspberry shakes. No raspberry shakes for me. I don't think I have had a raspberry shake. I don't think I had any this summer. We tried to lay low as much as we could. I mean, given the whole the whole COVID situation, there were a lot of people here in town. And so so we we tried to stay to ourselves as, as best we could. 
Yeah, we we were up there this past July, and I don't think we had driven up there in probably 25 or 30 years. And we had just a wonderful day over on the eastern shore. You're on the western shore. And then we made the loop around the north side, came down to Garden City, tried to get a raspberry shake, but the line was too long, so so we headed home. But just know, Chris, we're going to welcome you back here in Park City so you don't have to drive quite so far to go skiing at Deer Valley. I appreciate that. Thank you. Chris, uh, you've had an amazing career and and, uh, great to have you on the podcast. You grew up uh, in New England, so to many here in Utah, they may not be familiar with your background. Talk a little bit about your background and growing up in New England and getting into ski racing. I got into ski racing, I think, really by accident. I grew up in a town called Granby, Massachusetts, which was probably about 5,000 people in Western Mass. And everybody says, oh, it's in the Berkshires. And it's like, no, no, we're in the in-between of the Berkshires. And then the other people say, well, you can't be from Massachusetts because you don't have a Boston accent. I'm 45 minutes west of the accent, really, is what it comes down to, if anybody knows. Uh, Small town and Mount Tom was was about 10 minutes away, 680 feet of vertical. So, you know, about half the height of the Empire State Building. It was owned by a construction company and the the patriarch of the family, a family construction company, loved the mountain, just loved it. We had spectacular snowmaking, spectacular lights. It would light up the whole valley, the whole Connecticut River Valley. And, and we just went there every day. My father started teaching right when we moved to that area. And I saw the kids racing and I was six years old or something. And I said, I want to do that. So I started racing at Mount Tom and we raced on, we trained on the boulevard, which was just a little double chair, wooden slats. And I mean, it probably, I don't know, it was probably maybe 25 gate slalom and maybe like 15 gate GS. Maybe I'm exaggerating. It might, might've been less, but, uh, but that's what we did it every day. My father would teach, my father was a teacher. And so he would teach skiing afterwards. My mother started as a ski patroller and then eventually uh, was an instructor as well. So they'd pick us up at school. My brother and I would get into the car. We'd change, you know, put our warm up pants on over our, over our Levi's or whatever. And, and we'd go out and ski and, and it was just, I fell in love with it. And part of it was the coaching. My first coach was a guy named Rob Broadfoot and Rob had skied at the University of Maine Farmington and then came down and, and was going to graduate school at Springfield College and wanted to continue coaching. And so he, he coached and, you know, as, as a six-year-old, it was like, he was my coach, but he was my friend as well. And he's in his middle twenties or whatever. But it was it was just it was just such a cool thing, and it was a different sport than anything I'd ever done. Where you come down, and he would say he would say we tell you what you did well, tell you what you could improve, and he was so good at just just propping you up. And I asked him recently, you know, how he looked at that, and he said, "Well, so many people are going to tell you what you don't do well. I wanted to make sure that you knew what you were doing well." And, uh, and so, yeah, he started that. And I went from Mount Tom to Berkshire East, which was, I think, about a thousand feet of vertical. So moving up to the big mountain up in Charlemont, Massachusetts, and then, uh, and ski race there basically from 14 up until, up until I graduated from, from high school. And then I skied at Middlebury College. And so I was just preparing really to, for my first year of competing for the team. And, uh, and that's when I had my accident. 
was uh, December 20th of 1988. I want to get back to the accident here in a second, but let's go back to Mount Tom. I, having grown up in the Midwest myself, I fully appreciate it. And if you had 670 feet of vertical, we had nothing close to that <laughs> in the Midwest. But, but, but Chris, I often think about this, that you know, we, we love our, our big mountains with two to 3,000 feet of vertical, but you can have a whole lot of fun on 600 feet of vertical growing up, can't you? You really can. And it's it's not just the, the fun. I mean, it's the skiing part. And there were times that my brother and I'd be there until nine o'clock at night and, and we would ski, we'd train, and then we'd go and jump into somebody else's course or we'd go and ski on one ski. But it was also, it was the community. It was, it was a babysitter for so much of, of the local community where people would drop the kids off and say, hey, I'll be back in a couple of hours and pick you up. And we had the run of the mountain, which is something that's kind of funny right now, isn't it? That, that you think, oh, you're a six-year-old kid, you know, you're not, you're not going to be left unattended. And it's like, oh, we'll be fine. You know, back then we were fine. And that was, that was the cool part. And it's fun just to see the friends that I still have from those days. It, it persists into adulthood. So let, let's fast forward now to 1988, uh, when you had the accident. You're an aspiring racer with Middlebury College. You're doing what your passion has led you to do. And all of a sudden, your life changed in an instant. It really did. And it's funny because I, I ski raced. I didn't go to a ski academy. I went to a prep school, which meant that you know, we might get to train for an hour a day or something like that. And it was a much shorter season. And, and I felt like I'd never given myself the chance to see how good I could be as a ski racer. So going to Middlebury in a lot of ways for me, trying to, trying to race there and who's going to be trying to race was going to be my Olympics. It was going to be how, how I proved how good I could possibly be. And so I spent the whole, the whole fall really trying to, trying to somehow write a new narrative. And, and so my goal every day was to push myself in dryland training to the point where I wanted to quit. Because if I quit and then moved a little bit beyond that, then it was new territory. And that new possibility could, in my mind, translate into when I got onto snow. And so I was in this, this complete growth mindset as I was approaching the, the ski season and we skied a little bit before before Christmas break. We'd gone to Killington a few times, and I think gone to uh, gone to the Snowball a little bit. And I think I raced at Stowe, and and so a little bit, but just it was sort of I was going to get my chance to actually put some time in. And the first day of Christmas vacation, I went home. My brother and I went to Berkshire East, met up with a bunch of the buddies. I had one, one friend of mine who was skiing at UVM, and there were about, I don't know, there were probably six or eight of us or so. And we all skied with a group, and we were going to train, going to train back with my junior coach. And it was a warm, sunny day. It was like a spring day, 20th of December slushy snow, which was completely unheard of. I mean, Midwest is probably the same thing where you can see that candy wrapper through the ice that somebody had dropped back in October, right? And But this was warm and sunny and snow was slushy. And we took a couple of runs, as the coach said, and I was testing a new pair of GS skis, hadn't been on them yet. And we were going to run slalom and we came down, went back to the race shack and he wasn't there. So we decided we'd take one more run. And it was just kind of a strange thing. You're trying to find that, that sense of, of harmony, 
I think in, in your skiing, right? That Cause you hadn't really been on snow that long and just f- trying to find that right feeling. And that's what I was doing and came over a little, little knoll and then made a turn and my ski popped off in the middle of a turn. And all I remember is my ski popping off. I fell in the middle of the trail as best I can recreate it. Cause I don't remember anything. I was, I was, uh, I was in shock, but my friend who was at UVM a guy named Jim Schaefer actually now owns Berkshire East. Uh, he was the first one to me. My brother was there soon afterwards and I was just kind of lying on the ground and they were doing their best. It was obvious to them that I'd hurt myself pretty badly. So they were trying to keep me from moving and, and everything until the ski patrol could come up. And so I don't remember any of it, but I was conscious throughout and as best I can reconstruct it. I fell in the middle of the trail and didn't hit anything but the ground. It was just one of those weird falls. I probably had taken what I thought were much worse falls and had no problem. But this time I did whatever I did. I I did it in exactly the right or the wrong way, however you want to look at that. So you had friends with you. You had some support around you at that time. I did. I did. I had friends around me. It was, yeah, it was probably six or eight of us. And, and my brother, this guy, Jim Schaefer, who was the first one to me, uh, Tim Flaherty, who was, who was, who had raced with us and then was coaching, uh, Jim's brother, two brothers, I think one of their friends, you know, so there were a lot of people and, and, you know, you get to know everybody at a small mountain as well. So it was pretty quick that the, that the ski patrol was there and they brought me, brought me down the hill and, you know, ambulance took me to the hospital, helicopter flew me to the next hospital. And that's when my, when my family really kind of caught up to me, my father had come to the first hospital and it was kind of like a, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a series of snapshots kind of thing. I remember my ski popping off. Then I remember my father looking down at me as I was lying on the gurney in the first hospital. And I thought, uh Oh, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And, and then it kind of, it kind of faded to black a a little bit. I mean, not, not that I went unconscious or anything. I just don't remember it. And then remember waiting for the, for the helicopter and being cold. And, but when I landed at the second hospital, obviously they did all sorts of tests and everything. And my parents and my brother were in the waiting room, which they describe as this, this really small waiting room. And it was just them. And it was just time just kept ticking and ticking. I mean, just hours. And finally a doctor came out and he said, your son's broken his back. He'll never walk again. And he turned and he left and, and they were left to make sense of it on their own. And it was just such a, an incredibly traumatic thing. My father said something that was pretty amazing as he doesn't, he doesn't remember it, but my mother remembered it. And, uh, and he said, uh, he said, cause they all cried and he said, look, that's the last time we can cry. We have to be strong for Chris. And, and that, that to me captures who my, who my family is, that it was this sense of resilience. It wasn't about them. It was about how could they give me the best opportunity to heal. And, and they gave me a great opportunity. I was really, I was really in charge of my own, of my own health and, and, and moving forward. And, you know, they, they didn't really, I think they, I had my mother help me fill out a, an application to study abroad while I was in the hospital. <laughs> I think she was looking at me going, I don't know how this is going to work, but okay, let's just go through with it and see how it, how it plays out. And then, uh, and then I was in the hospital for two months, which was a relatively short period of time back then. 
And I left on Friday and returned to Middlebury two days later on Sunday. What what was the nature of your of the disability, and and has it evolved at all since that time? Uh, so what I did is I broke thoracic ten and eleven. So there are twelve thoracic bones. There are seven cervical bones, which is really like breaking your neck. And it, for me, I broke and really pulverized, I guess, those two, those two vertebrae. The doctor said it looked like a bad car accident, which, you know, which is one of those things we're on the hill and I was probably going 20 to 30 miles an hour, which doesn't seem fast when you're skiing, but when you fall, it can be fast. And so, uh, so yeah, so that's what I broke. It corresponds to about belly button as far as sensation. And really I have the muscles just below the sternum and sort of corresponding back muscles. So when I started skiing in a monoski, I'm getting ahead of myself here, Tom, but I'll, but I'll finish that thought. I, I was in the most disabled of the three classes because I don't have the ability to sort of like lean over onto my legs. Like if I'm sitting in my wheelchair to lean onto my legs and then sit back up. I don't have the muscles to do that. So once I, once, once I'm on my leaning on my, on my thighs, then I really, I, that's where I am until I push myself up with my arms. You know, Chris, one of the things that's always amazed me about that accident and your return to sport is you, you had so many things to look at in your life. So many things that were changing for you just in an instant, but skiing seemed to be one of the top things on your list. You were back on snow within a year of that accident. I was back on snow within the year, within a year, 362 days actually after the accident. And I thought about skiing. I mean, we, we did, you know, I did a fair amount of mental imagery when I was training for skiing and, and there was nothing I could do while I was lying in the hospital bed. And I thought over and over about skiing and thought, and really at that time I thought, okay, I'll get back. I won't be healthy for the season, but maybe I'll be able to ski like maybe forerun the Middlebury Carnival, which was always the last race of the year. That's what I initially thought. Nobody told me that I was paralyzed. That doctor who told, initially told my parents had demonstrated a fairly miserable bedside manner and they, they protected me. They didn't want me to, they didn't want me to be labeled in that way, to be labeled that my life was essentially over. And so, so they, yeah, they, they, nobody told me really uh, that I was paralyzed. And so I kind of made it up myself and I was, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I kind of understand sort of what's going on here. And I did believe that I, as, as an athlete would be able to create the miracle and be able to, you know, be able to recover completely. But at the same time, a friend of mine asked me if I would be willing to be in a movie about adaptive skiing, a documentary movie about adaptive skiing. And he asked me this while I was in the hospital. And I said, yes, sure. I will do that. A friend of his was making that movie. And so that to me was, was the plan. And, and if you step back, Tom, I know, you know, uh, or knew Diana Golden. Yes, very well. Yeah. And Diana was, was an amazing person. I saw her at a giant slalom at Burke mountain the year before my accident. And I'd never seen, like, I remember seeing one guy with outriggers in like the Christmas lift line at Mount Tom 
when I was a kid, you know, back when it used to, when you were in the, really in the corral, when it was a 45 minute lift line and you're going back and forth and back and forth. And I remember seeing a guy, but I never saw him ski. I'd never seen anybody ski in a, in a mono ski, but I saw Diana at this race. And my first thought was really, huh? All right. There's a, there's a woman with one leg who's coming to this race and, uh, okay. But then I watched her ski and to me, she captured what it meant to be an athlete that, that we as athletes often protect ourselves so much, right? As ski racers, it's really easy to have all of your excuses before you go through the starting gate. And, and she was somebody who was just, who, who just said, look, I, I'm not going to make any excuses. I don't have time for excuses. She laid herself bare effectively and just said, I'm going to fall down, but I'm going to get back up. And, and in watching her, I thought that's the, best encapsulation of what it means to be an athlete, to, to know that you're going to fail, but know that that failure is not going to stop you and that you're not going to try to soften the blow of the failure before it happens. And I saw Diana, and in a lot of ways, I gained a hero that day, as probably did a lot of the other racers. But when I was in the hospital, I remember thinking, and when I first started skiing in a monoscale, I remember thinking, I want to be like Diana. I want to do what she did. And in a lot of ways, like, you know, like Julie Parisian was in that race, uh, you know, there were right after she had made the ski team and, you know, there, there were some really good skiers in that race, but Diana in a lot of ways was bigger than all of them. And, and I wanted to follow in her footsteps. So yeah, so 362 days, my coach at Middlebury, Bart Bradford called me up right after I returned to school in the fall. And he said, Hey, come on down here. I've got an idea. And so I went down there and he had been at a junior development camp out at Mount Hood during the summertime. And obviously you've been to Mount Hood. I mean, it's just wide open snow field where it's just like football field sort of with uh, lanes where there are, I don't know what, 15, 20 of them or something like that. And so you see everybody who's next to you in the disabled team. It was the disabled team instead of the adaptive team back then. And he saw these guys skiing in a monoski and Jennifer Kennedy, who was a coach had skied for him when he was previously at UVM. And so Bart said to me, Hey, I saw these guys skiing. I think you should do this. Like we're going to buy you your, buy you a monoski. And the friends of Middlebury Skiing bought my first mono ski for me. And I, you know, I, I, it came in on the 17th, I think 16th or 17th. I skied on the 17th. So probably came in on the 16th. Bart put it together. He, uh, he got one of his best buddies, Boomer Mumford, uh, gave me some skis. He was with Kesley at the time, gave me some skis. And I still have my uniform jacket. And we went out there and, and he said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, uh, I, I, I don't know. Like we go to the top, right? I mean, I'd always known how to make a turn and, and I fell all over. I didn't make one turn that first day, Tom. You know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine this and knowing the mentality that you had as an able-bodied ski racer and trying to convert that into this plastic tub. And, and I imagine that this mono ski was not exactly what mono skis evolved to over the course of your career, was it? It wasn't, but I skied in that monoski. That was a shadow monoski, which was developed by a guy named Jim Martinson. Jim had lost both legs to a bouncing Betty in Vietnam. 
and and for him, skiing was such a part of the culture. I think he has four or five brothers, and it was a part of the culture of his family. And he wanted to introduce it to his kids. And so he said, "Oh well, I'll, I'll develop this thing, and and then they'll get too good, and they'll leave me, and and that'll be okay." And Jim, I think at sixty three or sixty five years old, called me up, and he said, and he and I skied on the on the U.S. team for a while together. But at 63 or 65 years old, he called me up and said, hey, can you get me into that mono skier X on the X Games? <laughs> you know, in his middle 60s. And, and I said, yeah, I'm sure I can get you into that. And uh, that's, that's who he was. He became another hero for me. I mean, he's, the, you know, he's now 74 years old and still has the mentality of a 15-year-old. He's going to charge as hard as he can. And his... He, he called them his nephews, but they were really his great nephews. When I saw him recently, he said, so they say, you know, Uncle Jim, you go bigger than anybody. And it's still true that he does. And so so that was the Shadow Monoski. And I used that Shadow Monoski through 1998. So really for the first 10 years of, of my career. And, and it was, you know, it wasn't as high tech as, as they are now, but it was something, it did a lot of things really well, let you put the energy into the ski. And for me as a former able-bodied skier, that was the important part. I didn't want it to be different. I didn't want it to be sort of this, this watered down version of the sport because skiing is, you know, skiing, skiing is about speed. It's about the time, but it's also a beautiful sport. I mean, I feel like it crosses over with, with ballet in a lot of ways where like when you watch somebody do it well, it is just, it is just spectacularly beautiful. And, and that's, that's part of what brought me back to it. And the shadow monoski allowed me to do that. It has continued to evolve. I ski on, on what's called a dine access now, which is, which, you know, the, these guys wanted me to, wanted me to try it out. And they said, well, well we're coming into park city and, and we'd love for you to, to try out our ski. I was doing a presentation in in, uh, in Sarajevo, in Bosnia, and and I was going to get home the day before they wanted me to ski with them. And I thought, I'll be happy to come ski in your ski, but just know it's going to be miserable. I will be on three planes. I will fly for like 20 hours before, before I arrive there. I will be all contorted. And I got into the ski and I felt like I couldn't fall over. I really did. I felt like, wow, this is this has changed. And and uh, and Joachim, the guy who 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 is the engineer, is a professor at Lehigh, and he teaches mechanical engineering. But he also, I think, his PhD is in aeronautical engineering. He's built his own airplanes. He's flown his own airplanes that he's built. So so he's a guy who who is not doing just sort of the the garage version of engineering, which is really ultimately where we started, which was great, but, but it's really cool to see it, to see it progressing because we need those kinds of people. We need those people like Yoakum to be able to do that because it's, it's a a small number of people. There aren't economies of scale. You're not going to mass produce thousands and thousands of, of monoskis. So it's really cool that there are some people who, with some great knowledge, who are pushing it forward. And obviously the athletes have been important with that as well. Chris, we've been talking about monoskis and, you know, just thinking about it in my mind, how do you actually manage yourself in a monoski? Monoskiing is actually, if I do it correctly, 
from the waist up, it is the same. Our bodies are all connected, right? So, so it's one ski. I have two outriggers and I sit in a seat with my feet out in front of me, but it's where I forget that I'm sitting down because if I do it correctly, if I'm sort of lifting my inside shoulder up and forward, it drops my hip into the snow. And what's spectacular now, Tom, is that the skis are so much better that it just is the feeling of making a turn. And that to me is the thing that keeps me coming back. And it's the balance is like, is like learning how to ride a bike. Once you find that balance, it really makes sense, even though you're just on one ski. But the feeling of making a turn, and it's exactly the same as what I would try to do when I'm standing up, really. I know that in your career, you have introduced able-bodied persons to monoskis so they could experience that. When they get out of that little plastic cockpit, what's the first thing they say to you? You know, I did one, I did a uh, an experiential uh, article with ED, uh, EDT's Morgan, and she was spectacular. She got on first time at Park City and, and arc turns the whole way down, which was a huge relief for me because... I didn't know what I was going to do with a beginner, but it was also really funny to take her up to payday, which on the way up, she said, oh, you know, this is the only GS I ever did well on because it was so flat and easy. Suddenly it had a, it had a head wall on it. Payday had a head wall when she was in a monoski, totally changed her perspective. But when she got out, she said, you know, that really was, it was, it was similar to what I've done before, but it was so it was so different. It gave me an entirely different perspective on what I was trying to do. And, and I think that's, there's a sense of relief and a sense of, wow, that's cool. And I'd like to try to get good at it. Chris, we're going to take a short break and be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about your Paralympic career. You know, going back to that day that you got on the monoski for the very first time, it was just two years later and you were at the Paralympics, ultimately going on to win 12 winter and one summer medal. We're with Chris Waddell, Paralympic champion and a proud Utah skier. We'll be right back with Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. One of the truly must-do stops for your Utah ski vacation is to pay a visit to Stein Erickson Lodge at Deer Valley Resort. Olympic champion Stein Erickson brought a special style with him to Deer Valley, a feeling that lives on today at Stein Erickson Lodge. I spent a lot of days on the mountain at Deer Valley Resort, and I always make it a point to pop into the lodge for a break. Steins is Utah's only Forbes five-star hotel and spa with a world-renowned culinary team led by chef Zane Holmquist. That reminds me, I need to make a reservation for the amazing Sunday brunch at Steins, now serving family style. While you're there, visit Steins' trophy case in the lobby to see his Olympic medals. I was at Steins recently and couldn't believe the amazing gingerbread house in the lobby. Check it out and bring the kids. It's a comfortable vibe for everyone, whether you're a lodge guest or just spending a day on the slopes. Everyone's welcome at Stein's. Start your day at the First Tracks Cafe, then bring the kids back to the Champions Club Entertainment Center later in the day. An insider's opera ski tip, try Stein's Cheese Fondue in the Glitterin Restaurant. Stein Erickson Lodge is located in Silver Lake Village, a great spot for lunch or opera ski. Now let's get back to our interview with Utah skier Chris Waddell.
And welcome back. We're with Chris Waddell, Paralympic champion. And Chris, uh, before the break, we were starting to talk a little bit about your Paralympic career. And one of the things, too, that, that really amazes me is that you, with just really two years' experience in the monoski, you went to the 1992 Paralympics in Albertville, France, and you came back with medals. Uh, quite amazing quick progress. It was amazing progress. I actually graduated. So I graduated on skis from Middlebury. Middlebury, I believe, is the only college in North America that has a skiing graduation. So a full cap and gown procession. And, and I graduated from Middlebury, hopped on a plane and flew to Durango for my first, uh, first really full-fledged team camp when I was a full-time ski racer. So did that, made, made the team... Uh, which it was touch and go. They combined a lot of classes going into Alberville. So I remember I had a conversation with Stefan Hench, who was our head coach at our Keystone camp. We would often have our first camp of the monoskiers would have our first camp of the season at Keystone in Colorado. And he and I got on the lift. It was the first lift ride of the year, just the two of us. And he said, he said, well, I just want, you, want to let you know that they're combining a lot of classes. They're limiting quotas because at that point we had 13 different classes and there were three classes of monoskiers and typically they had three slots per class. And what they did is they combined a bunch of classes. So we went from three monoski classes to two monoski classes and, and all the guys from the class above me were coming into my class. And then we only had one slot per class. So I think we were able to ski like nine or 10 U.S. skiers. And so that was blind skiers or visually impaired skiers, amputees, you know, arm amputees, leg amputees. So all across the board. And I got on the lift with Stefan and he said, you know, they're combining all these classes. Uh, just want you to know that most likely you're not going to make the team. <laughs> And this is the this is the brashness of youth, I believe. I told him, well, if I don't make the team, then I'm probably going to be done. I'm going to, because I saw all my friends who are graduating from college who are going and starting careers. And I figured, hey, if I don't get a chance to compete on the highest level, I, I, I'm not going to get to go anywhere. And and I it was touch and go throughout the whole season, just trying to figure out how I might be able to make that team. And I... At the at the last race, they named the team, and everybody was staying at at the hotel at the uh, uh, the Rain Tree Hotel in Winter Park, Colorado. And I was staying I was staying with one of my teammates because I had I had sort of slept on their couch for a long time with uh, with Sarah Will and Matt Feeney who were roommates there, and I they let me graciously let me stay on their couch, and so I wasn't there for the team meeting where they announced the team and I got onto the bus the next or into the van the next day to go to the airport. And the guy who had been the guy in my class, Peter Axelson prior was sitting in the front seat and he said to me, well, congratulations. And I said, well, congratulations about what? And he said, well, you've made the team. And I, and I, Jennifer Kennedy was driving that van and I said, really, have I made the team? <laughs> like, cause, cause for me, it was, it was very much up in the air, but I, I made the team. The hardest part in a lot of ways was getting there. You remember Jack Benedict, who is the leader of our team. And, and Jack said, you are on this team to win medals. You're not on the team to do anything else. You're on the team to win medals. And, and you remember how Jack was, 
I believe Jack was a, he was a double amputee, but I think he was the first amputee in Vietnam, double amputee to stay in active duty after losing his legs. And yes, that's correct. That represents who Jack was. Jack was, you know, that, that whole tougher than nails kind of thing. I mean, that, that really was who Jack was. He, I I love Jack. He scared me at times. And he said, you're on this team to win medals. And I thought, okay, well, this is it. Like I've, I've been taking my lumps the whole season. Now I get to go beat up on some people. This is good. And, and so I went into, into Alberville thinking, this is the fun part. This is, this is going to be great. We raced in team. We got about three feet of snow while we were there. Uh, I raced slalom and giant slalom. I was going to do the the training runs of the downhill, but it was a total whiteout. And then they ended up sort of shifting the schedule and having the slalom first. And so once that happened, they said, okay, that's it. No more, no more downhill for you, which was a huge relief really for me. I, I was not a, I was not a natural downhiller and certainly not a downhiller at that point. And yeah, I, I in the slalom, we, uh, we, we, the monoskiers actually had a better chance of winning medals than some of the people in the other classes. And so there were two of us in my class, Mike McDougal and I, and he had beaten me all year long and, and I got him that day. So I got him for a silver medal. Uh, there was an Austrian guy who ended up winning the gold. And then, and then a few days later, I don't re- actually, I think it was toward the end was the giant slalom. And, and it was that same, same guy, uh, Reinhold, Reinhold Sager. And, and I got him the first, the first run of the giant slalom. So I was leading the first run of the giant slalom and Chad Colley was the other, the other U S guy. And I think Chad had gone out. And so I was the U S representative and, and it was just, it was a whiteout. It was one of those whiteout days. And I hit a bump and kind of, kind of got a little bit squirrely and stayed in the course. And he ended up getting me by, I think, two tenths of a second. And so I ended up with two, with two silver medals, but that really, that, that launched my, my Paralympic career. So four years later, actually two years later, because Lillehammer was in that little cycle change that we did with the Olympics, but you went in as more or less a favorite and you came out with a bundle of medals. And in fact, I, you won all four. And when I think about this, I think back to great skiers like Jean-Claude Keeley, who won all the medals in Grenoble or Tony Seiler, who did the same in Cortina in 1956. So you went into Lillehammer and you took all four gold. Jean-Claude Keeley was my hero in a lot of ways. I was born in 1968 when he won all, th- it was all three races at that point. And, and he was, he was my father's hero, right? Because skiing, skiing was kind of, uh, you know, with Stein Erickson, with Jean-Claude Keeley, there, it wasn't really a full American sport. We were taking a bit of what we saw from the, from the Europeans. It was, it was sort of trickling in here and, and he was, he was my father's hero. And I thought, okay, this is it. I have a chance to do it. I had said early on, and I think this is some of the influence of Diana that I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be limited by the disability. I didn't want to be defined by the disability. And so I said, even though I was in the most disabled of the three monoski classes, I said that I was going to be the fastest monoskier in the world. And I made the mistake of saying that to one of my teammates who also was in my class. And he said to me, you will never beat those guys. And, and he had a really good point. I said that, and I was probably 30 seconds behind these guys. And if you talk about 30 seconds in a downhill at 60 miles an hour, that's like a half a mile behind. So I was, I was considerably behind them. But I said I was going to be the fastest monoskier in the world. And to me, 
that's the definition of skiing. I mean, skiing is such a funny sport where you can look at a, you know, the top seed of skiers and there's not a single body type. There's not that you say, oh, well, this guy's going to be faster than that guy, or this woman's going to be faster than that woman. They're always the people who surprise you. And, and I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be, I wanted it to be about skiing. And so 93 was really my breakthrough year. It was when I was really full time. I went to Vail, Colorado, moved to Vail, Colorado, got my equipment dialed in a whole lot better. And, you know, and, and, and I had to, (laughs) I had to figure out some of this stuff, Tom. I was, I was dating Sarah Will at the time, who was the best female monoskier. And, and I said, I was going to be the best in the world, but I was not the best in my house. She was still beating me uh, by a considerable bit when we first moved to Vail. And I figured some stuff out and, and she had gone and done a camp up at Alaska. She was, she was coaching some people and she came back and I had made the transformation and we did a town race in at Beaver Creek, which was just amazing. I mean, we were, we were doing a town race that was, that was on Centennial that was on the, you know, the bottom of the world cup hill. It was a great, great way to do it. And, and, and I finally beat her and I thought, okay, and beating Sarah, which is, which is, this is really a testament to how good she was. I thought, well, if I can beat Sarah, I might have a chance to beat everybody and came to park city and raced against Jim Martinson, who had been the standard bearer, and beat him in the slalom uh, in in Park City. That was the first time that I had beaten him. So I beat him in the slalom, and then uh, and then picked up Dave Kiley later on that year, and then and then actually at, at U.S. Nationals, I swept all four events uh, raw time, what we call raw time. Now it's a factored time, and so this was straight up time. And so going into Lillehammer, yeah, I was. I was thinking that that one I had a I had a chance. I mean, one I really should win all four races in my class. That there really shouldn't be anybody who could beat me. But I also needed to prove on the biggest stage that I could be the best in the world. And and in the downhill in Lillehammer, I realized that goal. I was I was the fastest mono skier in the world in the downhill. And so my class went first and. And I sat there and, and nobody in my class beat me. Nobody in the next class beat me, which is really the class that's paralyzed from the waist down. And then nobody in the other class, which are the double amputees, you know, some guys with some, some nerve damage and, and maybe, maybe uh, you know, a couple of other problems or something. I mean, there was one guy who actually walked well enough that I was, I was pushing through deep snow and he asked me if he could give me a hand getting through the deep snow at one point. And I beat all, all of those guys. And that to me, in Lillehammer was really the the pinnacle of my of my skiing career was was realizing that goal and being the fastest in the world. Did you have a conversation with your teammate who didn't think you could do it? I have never had that conversation with him. I've told the story numerous times, but I've never had that conversation with him. It would be kind of interesting to go back to it and and say, "Huh?" See, it actually can work. And, you know, mono skiing was relatively young. It was, it was sort of still in its infancy there. So, so uh, you know, I think that, that part of it was defining what was possible. Well, a p- part of st- establishing goals is the ability and the courage to put them on the wall and to tell people, this is what I'm shooting for. And, you know, we learned this uh, in my time at the U.S. ski team that, you got to put those goals on the wall. You got to be bold. That's the only way you're going to reach them. 
It is, and you're held responsible to that. If you say it out loud, then other people know. If not, we're our own easiest person to lie to, right? And it's like, oh, well, I, that's what I said, but you know, I didn't really, I didn't really know enough. I didn't really mean it. It's like, okay, if you if you mean it, say it out loud because other people are going to hold you to it. Absolutely, uh, Chris. Along the way, you made a choice to actually move to Utah. What what prompted that decision in the late nineties? So I moved to Utah in October of 99. I think I closed on my house and then two days later hopped on a plane and went to Europe to go train on the glacier. So, uh, you know, I moved there. One, I had finally kind of made enough money that I didn't have to that I didn't have to retreat to my parents' house after after uh, going broke throughout the winter. And, and so, so in some ways, as much as I traveled, it was probably an expensive storage unit, but at least it was a storage unit that was gaining equity. But I, in 96, one of my teammates, so I raced wheelchairs as well. And, and Atlanta was my first games. And a guy named Scott Hollenbeck was one of my teammates. And he ended up doing an internship with Coca-Cola, which was a big sponsor of the games. And I saw him as, as a spokesman for the Paralympics. I think Paralympics in a lot of ways, it's it's easy, and in some ways with the Olympic sports as well, it's easy to feel like a peripheral sport, right? We're not football, basketball, baseball. We're something that people care about every four years, and certainly for the Olympics. And at that time, the Paralympics, people really didn't know what it was. And there was a huge responsibility as an athlete to promote the games, to grow the games, to to achieve success for the games, there was an ownership, and and I saw what Scott did in Atlanta, and I thought, okay, with these games being here in 2002, I need to be part of that. I need to be part of the buildup to the games. I need to be part of selling the games and making sure that people know that it's here. So I moved in in 99, and and the other part of it, Tom, is that. Uh, we always came to, I think we did the Huntsman Cup usually in like January. And it was always spectacular weather. It was like t-shirt weather. I I did a, a talk for the retail or the uh, the real estate association through Marnie Schlopey. And I stayed with the Schlopies prior to the race. So I came in a couple of days earlier, a day earlier, or something like that. And I was leaving their house and I said to Kent, I said, uh, I said, you know, this is this is beautiful. And he looked at me, you know, I mean, granted, there might be a little bit of a uh, little bit of bias on the, being a real estate agent, but it, but he said, it's like this 320 days a year. This is why we moved here. And I kind of filed that away. And, and Marnie ended up buying me or not buying me. She ended up selling me my first house. And so I had known my brother, Matt, had gone to school with with Eric and Carrie and and all of that. And so we'd known them for a long time. And I filed it away and said, okay, Park City has nice weather too. This is a this is a good thing to do. So so yeah, I moved there, moved to Park City. I always loved Park City and and it was a great place to be. You know, you ultimately did serve an amazing role leading up to 2002. You did come away with some medals, but the real story I think of what you did there really came with the torch. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did and the emotion that went with that moment? Yeah, so I actually, so I have a couple of torch stories, which I also have a couple of torches as well, which is one of the things I don't know that people realize this, but when you when you get to carry the torch, you get the opportunity to buy that torch that you carried. And, and so they are 
they have been prominently displayed on my on my trophy case. I mean, it's it's amazing to be the custodian of of this flame that is representative of all that the Olympics and the Paralympics is about. And and so working with the games, I was able to carry the torch the day that it arrived in Salt Lake City prior to the Olympics. So there were 60,000 people downtown on State Street in front of the city and county building. And they always tell you, you know, relish this time. Don't go too fast. And there's 60,000 people who are, who are, uh, who are clapping. And it's hard, it's hard not to go too fast as, you, as you're carrying this torch, as you're just buoyed by, by this wave of applause. And I carried it with, with three other people who were, who were really heroes. I mean, Steve Mayer was one of the last four. He was on the bus with me. He was a guy who'd been on my wall as a kid. John Stockton, obviously the point guard of the Utah Jazz. Christy Yamaguchi, who was just, who was just phenomenal as a, as a figure skater. And, and, and the bus part is, is one of the things that's really kind of funny. And, and they tell you that that will be the best part of carrying the torch will be your time with the other people who are going to carry the torch. And, and I remember that uh, Prince Albert was on and he had his entourage of, of cameras and people and handlers and all of this stuff. And he was in the front and we were all in the back and, and John Stockton and, and, and Steve Mayer were, were keeping it light for everybody. They were, they were, they were giving people a hard time and, and sort of uh, making sure that we didn't get too uptight about all of, uh, all of what we were about to do. And Steve Mayer called up to, uh, to Prince Albert and he said, hey, hey, Prince, what do, what do we call you? And, and he came back and said, Albert would be fine. And it was it was great to get this because he also was an Olympian. He was he drove a bobsled in three or four games, I believe. And so so it was really very cool to to you know to be part of that to get to light the cauldron in front of sixty thousand people. My friend Jim Schaefer, whom I mentioned, who was the first guy to me after my accident, he he was on the on the stage as I was lighting the cauldron. And so for two kids from, from a small mountain in Massachusetts to be able to, to share this time and to share the journey of, of where we went in our lives was, was really cool to be able to say, wow, you never, you never thought you'd get out of the small town and, and, and you really did. And, and are, are part of one of the most important things. And uh, what was it? Probably it was a month later, right? Because, the Paralympics started a month later, I was able to light the cauldron in the stadium, in the, uh, in the Rice Eccles stadium with probably 50,000 people. And, and to be part of the, the, the start of the games, it's a, it was really that, that to me was just, it was one of the coolest moments and to be able to, to share that with all those people and say, yes, now, now it's going to be the exciting part. Chris, you said once, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And you had an illustrious career as a Paralympic athlete, but it really positioned you well to give back to others. And after your retirement following uh, Salt Lake City, uh, your career has been spent as an inspirational, motivational speaker. You have worked in advocacy for many causes. Uh, did you see that as a natural calling for you after your athletic career ended? That's a really good question. It is, it is funny, Tom, because if you asked me when I was in college, 
if I would be doing the stuff that I'm doing, I would tell you that you were absolutely crazy because I hated getting in front of a group. I mean, this was the the sweaty palms, the shaking knees, the shaking voice. Uh, I I hated it, absolutely, absolutely hated it. And and there are a lot of things that I ended up doing that that were in some ways in some ways were vehicles for for being able to tell the story. That that if I didn't have a story, I might not necessarily have have done these things. But I felt like. Learning how to mono ski, learning how to how to mono ski well, uh, then learning how to be be a wheelchair racer. I learned a lot of things the hard way, and it's not what happens to you; it's what you do with what happens to you. It's easy for people to say, you know, that's that's a product of of having had an accident. That it's like, okay, well, bad things are going to happen to all of us, and it's not. No, really, that's a product of being a ski racer. That. The best ski racers to me are the ones who can perform in all conditions when everything's going against them in the nerves, in the, you know, whatever it is, and, and still be able to perform the way that they've prepared. That is, I, I think to me, in a lot of ways, that is the highest compliment that you can pay to somebody is that, that you performed the way that you prepared. And, and I always wanted to be one of those, but something's always going to go wrong. And the idea of it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. It's like, okay, things are going to go wrong, but let's, let's, let's make this, let's make this work. Let's, it, it's not, it's not a time to give up. It's a time to say, this is the greatest opportunity for me to prove how good I really am. Uh, and, and it, it's sort of like as an athlete, I didn't get paid. I did win some prize money here and there. It wasn't enough to, you know, it was enough to buy, buy sushi dinner, but it wasn't necessarily enough to, uh, to support me. And so I got paid to tell my story, to make sense of my story. My sponsorships were not really, they were based anecdotally almost on my performance, but they were based more on my ability to, to convey my story in a meaningful way to an audience uh, both in in person and and via the media, so so that's what I ended up doing. It's it's where I found some some success. It's also where I realized that I really enjoyed it. That it was the performance. And after the thing that I miss most from my competing days is is that critical moment when it comes down to okay, here it is. You've done all of this preparation. Now it really matters. Can you put it together? And that's what getting on stage is for me right now, is that opportunity to perform when it matters. I guess I must love the nerves and and some sort of a some sort of risk taking. So so yeah, I never thought I would do it, but but in a lot of ways it is it, it is it makes a lot of sense and it also is a lifetime pursuit where I can continue to get better where I can continue to stretch myself. And that was, that was probably the greatest appeal of being an athlete is seeing the results of the transformation and the transformation that I orchestrated. 
You know, as an athlete, you oftentimes need to change directions very quickly. And one of the things, Chris, I've admired in you is in the last year, as a public speaker standing on stages with thousands of people, it's all changed. I'm experiencing this myself as well, because I'm in that same business. But you've had to really change direction in the last eight months, haven't you? I have had to change direction in the last eight months. I have not done one in-person speech. I've done speeches, uh, virtual speeches, where I, I have the computer looking back at me. I put together, I felt badly for a lot of the graduating seniors last year. And in, in 2011, I'd done a, done a commencement address at Middlebury College, and NPR put it on their list of greatest commencement speeches ever. And I thought, okay, maybe I can sort of reprise this role, uh, this speech, and and do it. And so we're talking to my iPhone, looking looking at myself, I, I did a commencement address. And, and you, if you want to talk about a really difficult audience, the most difficult audience is the one where you see yourself as you're talking. Uh, so to do that, we pivoted. I've been working on a television show. We've shot two episodes of it. It's called it's called Chris Waddell Living It, which is we have an expert with a disability who teaches an adventure to two able-bodied people. So the last one we shot was was bobsledding in Park City. We got to drive a bobsled, which sounds like a ton of fun and ended up being really scary because I didn't feel like I was prepared at all. And then you made it through and thought, well, that really was a ton of fun. So so it worked out great, but there was definitely the scary part. And I, I pivoted to a podcast. And so doing a podcast called Living It and also doing a live podcast for my foundation and it's called name tags chat and we do that wednesdays and for an hour straight and we stream it right to right to uh to facebook and so so it's been really fun to kind of see how these things work but yeah tom it's the same my i think my transformation to being able to speak was at a secondary rehab place that i went to for spinal cord injuries place called shake a leg at the end of the summer they brought an off-off Broadway company to the program and they put on a play and they asked me if I wanted to audition. And I said, no, because really at that time it was about walking. The only way that I could be whole was to walk again. And so I had straight leg braces that had just arrived and I thought, this is it. I'm going to get up and I'm going to be up 50% of the time. And I don't have any time for that. I said, you know, I don't do that kind of thing. I'm an athlete. And they said, well, just, just, you know, just, just audition. And it was when I actually got cast as the, as the lead in the play. Uh, some of it was, was really difficult. I, it was pretty much like a tutorial. The, the two guys who are partners in the company, Manhattan class company are Bernie Telsey, who is the, who is the casting representative to the Oscars. Uh, to the, to the Academy Awards, uh, that and uh, and Bobby Lapone, who was the original lead on Chorus Line, the woman who played my girlfriend was a professional actress, and so it was basically the three of them. It, it felt a little bit like abuse. It was all good natured, uh, but but yeah, I mean, they made me do scenes in gibberish. They made me do. Uh, they made me act without without speaking. They made me do you know a, a wide variety of different things that completely stretched me out of my comfort zone. But it also what what it came down to was 
can can you find can you find the sanity in a crazy moment? Can you can you be able to center yourself and and perform in the moment? And that's that's that was probably one of the greatest lessons that I've ever had. And the thing that I'm trying to remind myself as I'm doing these speeches and wondering if anybody's still listening to me, if my computer has frozen and, and if I've just been talking to myself for the last 45 minutes. So it's uh, there, there's definitely, yeah, there've been a lot of challenges, a lot of challenges in this last eight months. I love that finding sanity in the crazy moment. I mean, that's every day for us right now, isn't it? It really is. That's for sure. Chris, I know that Deer Valley is your go-to resort in Utah. And what are some of your favorite places on that mountain? You know, so I do the Ski with a Champion program at Deer Valley. So we ski a bunch of us. Uh, I'm the only Paralympian, but there are a bunch of Olympians as well. And we ski with clients. And it's one of the great things to be able to share our love of the sport and what it means and share the mountain. I spend a lot of my time at Deer Valley skiing, skiing on Bald Mountain. I love, I love, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Massachusetts on a tiny little ski area and it, it's so nice just to be able to get up and down and be able to ski it. And I'm, I am entertained. I could ski the same trail over and over again and continue to be entertained. Obviously they have a lot of chair, a lot of trails to choose from there, but but for me, I spent a lot of my time on Bald Mountain because I just get that I, I get that turnaround and and I can make a quick run, get on the lift, and you know it can be it can be a ten minute ten minute turnaround in terms of uh, one run one run to the next. So that's what I really enjoy. There really are some glory runs off of Bald Mountain. I know I could just imagine you dropping off in the monoski and that kind of steep pitch uh, off the chairlift and then just rolling down through the groomers. It's exactly it. And and absolutely love it. So yeah, I spend most of my time on the Wasatch lift, just just looping around. And and you know, and the amazing thing is that, you know, an, an hour and a half, two hours of of skiing like that, you think, well, I'm I'm pretty tired. I'm ready to call it a day. Chris, as we wind down, I want to bring it back to uh, today. And uh, you are also involved in the efforts in Salt Lake City and in Utah to bring the Olympics and the Paralympics back. Uh, it will be hopefully 2030 or 2034. Uh, but in your role as one of the co-chairs of the athlete Utah Athletes Advisory Council, what are your thoughts on the opportunity that we have here in Utah to bring the games back and get the Paralympics and the Olympics back here in Utah in the future. My experience in 2002 was was the greatest experience that I've had really in the Paralympics. I mean, I won all four races in Lillehammer, which was which was pretty amazing, and that was that was on a different different uh, that was a different kind of thing. But the the interaction with the people in Utah was just different than anything else I'd, I'd really seen. I mean, I think the only one I could compare it to would be Sydney. And the Australians are obviously famous for, for their, their embracing of sport. But, uh, but it was just, I mean, it, it's such a phenomenal area. And we have greatest snow on earth. We have mountains all within an hour's drive of the airport. We have like 12 or 14 mountains, right? We have, we have so many athletes who, who live and train here it's a culture of sport uh we have blue bluebird sunny days and and i think that i think that really 
the biggest thing about having the games back here is that it is, it's a receptive community. There are a lot of cities that are not interested where the people aren't really that interested in hosting the Olympics and the Paralympics, but the people here in Utah are. And I think that what it could be is it could be a great celebration of sport, being involved on the Athletes' Council. Athletes, in in many ways, are the, uh, well, probably in the biggest way, are our greatest resource for the games. They are our connection to the games. They are the story that makes it all make sense. And we have so many athletes in this area. I mean, over a hundred athletes in this area that'll be part of the games. And, and it's, I, I find that, that it's one, what we see on television, but it's two also being able to learn from the people who've been there, what it really means. Because to me, competing on this level, it is, it is the greatest representation of what it means to be a human, of what it means to, to set a goal, to, to push ourselves beyond whatever we thought we could do, and, and then to be able to seize that moment. I mean, it's the, being an athlete is, is a, a lifetime's work for the hope of a moment of glory that you can perform in that moment, but also preparing for that moment and knowing that you're going to put your best effort forward and it's not always going to manifest itself in winning a medal, but hopefully it does manifest itself in, in, in realizing, in, in, in realizing the performance that, that you had been striving for and working for, for so long. And so I think that it's, I mean, it's a selfish thing in some ways. Like I just want the games back here because I want people to be able to experience it. I want my neighbors to be able to experience the greatest thing in sport. And, and I really hope that we're able to get it back soon. And we have an amazing, an amazing, amazing team. And so I I can't imagine that we won't, but I, I really, I, I really can't imagine that we won't. So, it's been interesting for me to watch this and see how the broader committee, which was formed only nine months ago, has such respect for athletes and the role that they've placed you and speed skater Catherine Rainey in is is, is one that is truly respected. And and you are starting to engage athletes, and the organizing group is really listening to that. The organizing group really is listening to it. And I think that that I, I, I've been blown away. I mean, I really have, I've been blown away by, by, uh, by our leadership, you know, and certainly, certainly coming first from, uh, from Fraser, who was Fraser, uh, who, who was, um, you know, who was Mitt's right-hand man in 2002, who's lived it. But, uh, but I mean, he, you know, he, I, I just I, I absolutely love the way that he leads. I mean, he's a he, he's a guy who who leaves nothing nothing undone. I mean, he's he's so prepared, but he's also so conscious of everybody else around it. And and looking at like Cindy Crane and Jeff Robbins and and Colin Hilton and and uh, but but yeah, I, I look at I look at this group and think. It is about the athletes. It's about the community, and and it's hopefully going to be about the future. But but yeah, I, I look at Fraser Bullock and I just think, wow, like Fraser, like he's he's a uh, he's he's a graduate class in leadership, really. So it's been a wonderful to to work with him and with the work with the whole group. 
Well, I know they're happy to have you in that role, Chris. And uh, it's been a real joy to talk with you. We're down to the final stretch of what I call fresh tracks. Uh, this will be a series of short questions with hopefully simple answers and no right or wrong here, but just to learn a little bit more about you before we wind up. So are you ready to go, Chris? I am ready. I'm a little nervous, but I'm, but I'm ready. Don't be too nervous. I'll be easy on you. Pretty simple one right out of the chute. We've talked a lot about skiing, but what do you like to do outdoors other than skiing? What sort of activity is really uh, exciting for you when you're not in the monoski? The biggest thing that I do outdoors other than skiing is, is hand cycling. So it's my version of road biking, and I get to ride with my wife. We're living on Bear Lake, which is 50 miles around uh, the circumference of the lake, and so we do that fairly, fairly regularly. Uh, we've done, you know, it's been kind of fun. It's sort of like you never leave being an athlete, but to go and do some other, some other events, like some, some century rides, we've done the NAC, uh, uh, NAC, uh, summit challenge ride, which was probably one of the most brutal hundred milers that I've done, but an amazing ride. So, so really hand cycling. A lot of people don't know this, but you are also not just a public speaker, but you are an author and you've written an entire line of children's books. What is the most difficult thing for you in writing a children's book? Writing a children's book, writing the story is, is almost what I imagine like writing a song is where you get an idea and you can go right through it and you can do it in one sitting and it's, it's done pretty quickly. The illustration, I had to teach myself how to draw and, and some of it actually looks like what I intended to draw. I hope that at some point, my, my greatest hope is that my mistakes become intentional at some point uh, as opposed to just accidental. But, but the illustration is the hardest part. Chris, you can always tell the audience that isn't what I that is what I intended to do. <laughs> That's a good point. Thank you. So, Chris, you have earned many, many honors in your career. You are a member of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, class of 2009. You have been recognized by the Dalai Lama. Uh, you have been a uh, one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People. There's all of these honors. What's the most notable one in your mind? What's the most notable one? I was wondering where you were going because I figured that the uh, People magazine would make its way in there. Uh, which, which, funny enough, People magazine did, it was the greatest opportunity for me to make a living as, as an athlete. Uh, being in People Magazine legitimized me much more so than than all of the medals that I won in, in the in the in the eyes of a lot of people, which is kind of funny, and you know, it's just the way it works. But uh, uh, what is the the greatest one? Uh, wow, I mean, it it is hard. This is probably like like picking a favorite child, right? That uh, uh, the Dalai Lama. It was amazing to be able to be in his presence. I think you, you felt like you you stepped into this corona of light to be in a place of peace and happiness and joy. Uh, this past this past November, I got in, inducted into the into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame, and that that might be the the highest one in some ways just in that that it's it, it's with a lot of my heroes i mean i have a i have a picture here a black and white of of tommy smith and john carlos on 
on the podium in Mexico in 1968, and and they were inducted last year as well. So so to be able to share it with some of those people that you realize that that was a moment in my life, but the impact continues to um, to to go forward, and and there's a responsibility. I think that's a great one, Chris. A lot of honors. Chris, I know you've challenged yourself in many ways throughout your career. What's a challenge that you've given yourself that we might not know about? Oh, you know, it, it's funny because because challenges are every day. I mean, that's part of being an athlete is, is finding a new challenge to push yourself forward. Now I do a lot of speaking and speaking in a lot of ways is it, it replaces that feeling, that moment that I had of getting into the starting gate, the coming onto stage, onto the stage, being nervous and marshalling those nerves and that adrenaline and everything. And so one of the things I thought if I could be funny that I'd get hired more, uh, but I also thought it would make it easier to get on the stage. And so I've gone to open mic night a few times at comedy clubs, which is terrifying. It, it is completely terrifying. The last time I did it, I thought, wow, I, I completely shrunk. I, I completely, I was like a deer in the headlights at first. I got on the stage and went, I know I'm supposed to say something and I don't know what it is. And it took me a while to get going. And, but to be able to bring that into, you know, back onto the stage, it made, it made doing a lot of the stuff that I do typically much easier. And I'd like to get better at the comedy stuff, Tom. I can't tell you that I'm good at it, but, but it, it encourages me each time I do, I, each time I force myself to do it because, because I feel confident in, in that I'm doing something different and I'm doing something that scares me. I have a little note card that I put right by my desk here that says run toward your fear. And, and the fear never seems quite as bad when you run toward it. But when it is allowed to sort of percolate in my brain, it seems a whole lot worse. So, so comedy has been one of those things and people wouldn't know. And, and I don't know that they're going to pay to see me, Tom, but, but, uh, but hopefully I'll get back to it again sometime soon. Well, as a public speaker myself, I admire you doing that and I would be scared to death to give it a try. Uh, next question for you, Chris, your favorite Utah craft beer. My favorite Utah craft beer. Wow. See, that's a good thing. So actually, uh, it's funny. I, I'm still sweating from the comedy uh, question, Tom. I hope you, I hope you know. Uh, my favorite. Utah, There's no more hard, no more ones. hard ones. It's funny because I actually, uh, I actually uh, stopped drinking uh, about two and a half years ago, maybe a little bit more now. And so, uh, so I'm trying to think of what you know. I, I think that that I would probably go with Polygamy Porter though, uh, as as my favorite craft beer and and. Uh, there's a little bit of an aside to that in that before 2002, I did a the Nesson, which is the New England Sports Network. They carry the Boston Red Sox. I've been a Boston Red Sox fan forever. They, they called me up and said, hey, we want you to be on an Olympic Paralympic preview show. And I said to the guy, and who knows where this came from, I, I said, hey, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I will do it, but you got to get me to throw out the first pitch at a game. <laughs> and I ended up getting to throw the first pitch. And so when these guys were here, when they were in Utah, I brought them there and he was, he loved that he could take the polygamy porter, you know, why don't you bring some home to the wives? And, you know, when one just isn't enough, he thought that was the great immersion in Utah. 
So the great marketing genius of Greg Scherf. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So yes, yeah, so he's amazing. Last, last question. And I honestly don't know how this applies to a mono skier, but my traditional closing question in fresh tracks is groomers, bumps, glades, or powder? Uh, you know, I, I think probably, probably first is, is groomers. I still, the, the new shape skis, I mean, going from a 210 giant, straight giant slalom ski to these skis with shape. I mean, I love the feeling of making a turn. So groomers and then, and then powder. I did at one point, I donated a day of skiing to a fundraising event and it was a father and son who, and the son was about nine or 10 years old. And the kid was, uh, the kid was just, he was sort of dragging in the morning and went to lunch and I thought, okay, well, it'll be a half day of skiing. And the kid had a little bit of food and blood sugar came back and he was ready to go and ran into a few of his buddies. And then we ended up skiing the, the Olympic bump course all afternoon. I, I, I can't say that I really enjoyed that all that much. <laughs> bump skiing is not, I, I try to avoid them as best I can. I think, I think many of us do. And I included in there just hoping that someday somebody is going to pick that. And I interviewed Shannon Barkey a year ago, who is a two-time Olympic medalist in the bumps. She didn't go there. So I don't know that anybody is. So Chris Waddell, it's been a joy to talk to you. And we're so proud of having you in Utah and being an ambassador for the sport in our great state. And thanks for joining us on Last Chair. Thank you, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Keep it up. What an inspirational story of taking a tragedy and turning it into a lifetime of motivating others. We're proud to have Chris Waddell calling Utah his home. Watch for him on the slopes at Deer Valley Resort this winter. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. While you're here in Utah, spend some time in the beautiful Heber Valley. With soft, fluffy flakes coming this winter, it's time to think about playing in the snow. Winter is magical in Utah, and Heber Valley is certainly no exception. Heber Valley is a winter wonderland, ripe for exploring. Hit the trails on a pair of snowshoes, follow the groomed tracks on some cross-country skis, snowmobile through the fresh powder, see awe-inspiring midway ice castles, and warm up in the homestead crater or take a cozy train ride. Step off the slopes and grab a warm meal at one of the delicious restaurants in town like Midway Mercantile, Lola's Kitchen, or the Back 40. On a personal note, as a Park City local myself, we love heading to Heber and Midway for the great restaurants there. A big thanks to our sponsor, Heber Valley, and thanks for joining us here on Last Chair. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like button and subscribe in your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Kelly, your host for Last Chair, presented by High West. See you on the slopes. Party, if you don't ski and party, your wife's home, you won't